Welcome to all of you who are parents, alumni, and friends of Princeton, as well as anyone who's here from Cornell today. <laughs> Just to give you a little bit of background on Professor Fagel, he was the Arthur W. Marks Class of 19 Professor of Comparative Literature here at Princeton. He is the recipient of a 1996 Academy Award in Literature from the Academy of Arts and Letters. His acclaimed first translations include Sophocles, Three Theater Plays, Aeschylus, Arestia, nominated for a National Book Award in 1977. Homer's Iliad, winner of the 1991 Harold Morton Landon Translation Award by the Academy of American Poets, an award from the Translation Center of Columbia University and the New Jersey Humanities Book Award, and Homer's Odyssey, 1996. He lives in Princeton. He is currently at work on a new translation of Virgil's Aeneid. Please welcome Professor Robert Fagan. Abroad, 
returning home to kill the suitors of his wife and reunite with her, his father and his son. The Odyssey is a story of human struggle, in other words, a great test of individual strength and moral endurance for men and women both. And so to borrow a line from Robert Graves, there is one story and one story only. It's hard to resist the feeling and harder to define it. But the Odyssey is the story of the journey of our life, as Dante introduced his own great epic poem years later. Or as a later age would put it, Homer tells the story of our eternal return, our securing peace after years of bloodshed, and our striving to reclaim our roots, and taking root again, and rising back to health and strength and wholeness. The Odyssey is, as the cliche would have it, a timeless human story. Because it's always with us. It's always changing in our minds, changing as we change ourselves. The poem offers us something wild and woolly for our childhood. It offers a tale of coming of age for our adolescence. It tells a story or a saga of struggle and success for our middle age. And a song of heart and home and renewal for our later years. And all of these stories in one. The Odyssey is most everyone's story. It's something like the autobiography of the race. So let me begin. <coughs> let me tip the line and say a prayer for the news is with us, especially since it's all Greek there. Sings 
in the face of the Cyclops, to the grisly meal of a one-eyed monster made of many of the hero's shipmates. Here is a dish which that is cruel and cunning best, is quick-witted and self-delighted best. When young dawn with her rose-red finger shone once more, the monster lit his fire and milked his dancing muse, each in order, putting a suckling underneath each dam. And as soon as he briskly finished all his chores, he snatched up two more men and fixed his meal. Well fed, he drove his fat sheep from the cave, lightly lifting the huge door slab up and away, then slipped it back in place as a hunter flips the lid of his quiver shut. Piercing whistles, turning his flocks to the hills, he left me there, the heart had suddenly brooding over revenge. How could I pay him back? Would Athena give me glory? Here was the plan that struck my mind as best. The Cyclops' great club, there it lay by the pennies, hollowed, full of sap. He'd lopped it off to brandish once it dried. Looking at Uncle, he judged it big enough to be in the mast of a pitchback ship with a twenty oars, a freighter brought on the beam that plows through miles of sea. So long, so thick, it bulked before our eyes to dwell. Flanking it now, I chopped off a fathom's length, pushed it to comrades, told them to plane it down, and they made the club smooth as I bent and shaved the tip to a stabbing point. I turned it over hard, over and over did Charlotte guard good and bent in it well, buried deep under the dock that littered the cavern's floor in thick, wet clumps. And now I ordered my shipmates all to cast lots. Who'd brave it out with me to hoist our stake and grind it into his eye when sleep had overcome him? Luck of the draw. I got the very one that I would have picked myself. Four good men, and I believe they five. Nightfall brought him back, herding his woolly sheep, and he quickly drove his sleek flock into the vaulted cavern, rams and all. None left outside of the walled yard. His own idea, perhaps, or a god led him on. Then he hoisted the huge slab that blocked the door and squatted the milkless sheep and bleeding goats, each in order, putting a suckling underneath each stand. And as soon as he briskly finished all his chores, he snatched up two more men and fixed his meal. But this time, I lifted a carved wooden bowl brim full of my ruddy wine and went right up to the Cyclops, enticing. Here, Cyclops, try this wine to top off the banquet of human flesh you bolted down. Judge for yourself what stock our ship had stored. I brought him into a fine libation, hoping you would pity me, Cyclops, send me home, but your rages are insufferably barbaric. How can any man on earth come visit you after this? What you've done outrages all that's right. At that, he seized the bowl and tossed it off, and the heady wine pleased him immensely. More, the second bowl. A hearty helping. And tell me your name now, quickly, so I can hand my guest a gift to warm his heart. Our soil yields the Cyclops' powerful, full-bodied wines, but, and the rains from Zeus build its strength. But this, this is nectar, ambrosia. This flows from heaven. So you drink. I poured him another fiery bowl. Three bowls I bring, and three he drinks.
drank the last drop of pool. And then, when the wine swirled around his brain, I approached my host with a cordial, winning word. So, you ask me the name I'm known by Cyclops? I will tell you. But you must give me a guest gift, as you promised. Nobody. That's my name. Nobody. So my mother and father called me, all my friends. But he boomed back at me from his ruthless heart. Nobody! I'll eat nobody last of all his friends. I'll eat the others first, and that's my gift to you. With that, he toppled over, sprawled, full length, flat on his back, and lay there, his massive neck slumped to one side. And sleep that conquers all overwhelmed him now, as wine came spurting, flooding up from his belly with chunks of human flesh. He vomited, lying, drunk. And now, at last, I thrust our stake in a bed of embers to get it red hot and rally all my comrades. Courage, no man, no one can back now. And green as it was, just as the other stake was about to catch fire and to blow terrific gas, I dragged it from the flames, my men clustering around as some god breathed enormous courage through us all. Hoisting high that olive stake with its stabbing point, straight into the monster's eye they rammed it hard. I drove my weight on it from above and bore it home, as a shipwright bores his beam with a shipwright's drill with the men below. Whipping the strap back and forth, whirl, and the drill keeps twisting faster, never stopping. So we seized our stake with its fiery tip and bore it round and round in the giant's eye, till blood came boiling up around that smoking shaft, and the hot blast singed his brow and eyelids round the core, and the boiling eyeballs burst, its cracking roots blazed and hissed. As a blacksmith plunges a glowing axe or adds in a golden bath, and the metal screeches steam, and its temper hardens, that's the iron string. So the eye of the cyclops sizzled around that stake. He loosed a hideous roar. The rock walls echoed round, and we scuttled back in terror. The monster wrenched the spike from his eye, and out it came with a red geyser of blood. He flung it aside with friendly hands and mad with pain. He bellowed out from the for help from his other neighbor cyclops living around about in caves on windswept prairies. Hearing his cries, they lumbered up from every side, and hulking round his cavern, asked what ailed him. What, Palomimus? What in the world is the trouble? Roaring out in the godsend night to rob us of our sleep. Surely no one's rustling your flocks against your will. Surely no one's trying to kill you now by fraud or force. Nobody, friends, Polyphemus bellowed back from his cave. Nobody's killing you now by fraud and not by force. If you're alone, his friends boomed back at once, and nobody's trying to overpower you now. Look, it must be a place in here by Father Zeus, and there's no escape from that. You'd better pray your own father. Lord beside They lumbered off, but laughter filled my heart. To think how nobody's name, my great coming stroke, had do that one and all.
Odysseus has his tender side as well. And nowhere more so than in the underworld. For he goes to learn the best food home from Theresius to see her. But after receiving instructions from the, from the prophet, he finds his mother's ghost, and he's totally overwhelmed. And small wonder that he is. He left his mother still alive in But that was 20 years ago, when he first set out for Troy. And much has happened since then. He's learned in the course of a long, hard war the fragility of life itself. And here in the underworld, his mother brings that message of fragility home to her son. And she does so in some ways as breaks the heart. This is where I started to translate the Odyssey when my mother died in 76. And it fell to me as it falls to many of us to put together a collection of readings for a kind of public ceremony or session. And this is the first passage that came to mind. I couldn't translate it then, I was too discombobulated to do anything with it. But in the next few weeks after her death, I put myself together a bit. And this is what I came up with. O Tiresias, I replied as the prophet finished. Surely the, surely the gods have spun this out as fate is holding it to contact. The gods themselves. But tell me one more thing, and tell me clearly. I see the ghost of my long-lost mother here before me, dead, crouching close to the blood in silence. She cannot bear to look me in the eyes, her own son, or speak a word to me. How, Lord, can I make her know me the man I am? One rule there is the famous series playing, and simple for me to say, and you to learn. Anyone of the ghosts you let approach the blood will speak the truth to you. Anyone you refuse will turn and fade away. And with those words, now that his prophecies had closed, the awesome shade of Lord Tiresias strode back to the house of death. But I kept watch there, steadfast till my mother approached and drank the dark, cloudy blood. She knew me at once and wailed out in relief. And her words came winging toward me, lying home. Oh, my son, what brings you down to the world of death and darkness? You are still alive. It's hard for the living to catch a glimpse of this. Great rivers flow between us. Terrible waters, the ocean first of all. No one could ever ford that stream on foot, only aboard some sturdy craft. Have you just come from Troy? Wandering long years with her manuscript, not yet returned to Ithaca. You've still not seen your wife inside the falls. Mother, I replied, I had to make her down to the house of death, to consult the shade of Theresius, seer of Thebes. Never yet have I near to hear, never once set foot on the ground, always wandering. Endless hardship from that day I first set sail. With King Agamemnon bound for Troy, the stallion man, to fight the Trojans there. But tell me about yourself and spare me nothing. What form of death overcame you? What laid you low, son? Long, slow illness? Or did darkness showering arrows come with a famous shafts and bring you down? Tell me, father. Tell of the son I left behind. 
Am I royal rights to liars and eagles? Or does some stranger hold the throne by now? Because men think that I've come home to rule. Please, tell me about my wife, her turn of mind, her thoughts. Still standing fast beside our son, still guarding over his face, secure as ever now. Or has she with some other countryman at last? the finest prince among them. Surely, surely, my noble mother answered quickly. She's still waiting there in her halls, poor woman, suffering so, her life an endless hardship, like her own, wasting away the nights, weeping away the days. No one has taken over your royal rights, not yet. Telemachus still holds your great estates in peace. He attends the public banquet shared with all, the feasts a man of justice should enjoy, for every law invites him. As for your father, he keeps to his own farm. He never goes to town. With no bedroom there, no blankets, glossy throws. All winter long he sleeps in the, in the lodge with servants, in the ashes by the fire, his body wrapped in rags. But when summer comes and the bunker crops up on us, any spot on the rising ground of his vineyard rose, he makes his bed, he tied with fallen leaves, and there he lies, in anguish, with his old age bearing hard upon him too, and his grief grows as he falls beneath his neck. And I, I with the same grief I died and met my fate. No sharp eye took a showering arrow through the holes of coached and broken handled painted shafts. Nor did some hateful illness strike me that so often devastates the body, drains our limbs of power. Now, it was my longing for you, my shining Odysseus, you and your quickness, you and your gentle ways, that tore away my life that had been sweet. And I, my mind and turned how I longed to embrace my mother's spirit as she was. Three times I rushed toward her, desperate to hold her. Three times she fluttered through my fingers, sifting away like a shadow, dissolving like a dream. And each time the grief cut to the heart, sharper, yes, and I, I cried out to her, words winging into the darkness, Mother, why not wait for me? How I long to hold you. So even here, in the house of death, we can fling our loving arms around each other, take some joy in the tears that numb the heart. Or is this just some break that great Persephone sends my way to make me weep with sorrow all the more? My noble mother answered me at once, my son, my son, the unluckiest man alive. This is no deception sent by Queen Persephone. This is just the way of mortals when when we die. Sinews no longer bind the flesh and bones together. The fire in all its fury burns the body down to ashes. Once life slips from the white bones, and the spirit rusting, flitters away, flown like a dream. But you must walk with the dream. Go quickly. Remember all these things. So I may be covered in your life.
Let's cut to the chase. First, the Disney strings his bow. Then he strips away the beggar's rags and great war hero that he is. He launches out against the suitors of his wife. And so begins the largest single slaughter in Hoover, larger than any one slaughter in the arena itself. But here the action is an act of justice, as Homer sees it, even the necessary execution. I'll try my hand at Odysseus' skill with his weapon, then I'll give him the open salvo in this fine American look back. <coughs> Odysseus, mastermind in action, once he handled the great bow and scanned every inch, then, like an expert singer skilled in flyer and song, who strains a string to a new peg with ease, making the flying sheep cut fast at either hand, so with his virtuoso ease, Odysseus strung his mighty bow. Quickly his right hand plucked the string to test its pitch, and under his touch it sang out clear and sharp as a swallow's cry. Horror swept through the suitors, faces blanching white, and Zeus cracked the sky with a bolt his blazing sign. And the great man who had borne so much rejoiced at last, that the son of cunning Cronus flung that omen down for him. He snatched a winged arrow lying there on the board, the rest still bristled deep within his quiver, soon to be tasted by all the feasters there. Setting shaft on the hand grip, drawing the notch and bowstring back, back, right from his stool, just as he sat, but aiming straight and true, he let fly, and never missing an axe from the first axe handle clean on through to the last and out, the shaft with its weighted brazen end shot free. My son, Odysseus looked at the Menopus and said, Your guest sitting here in your house has not disgraced you. No missing tomorrow, and no more labor spent to string the bow. My strength's not broken yet. Not quite so frail as the mocking suitors thought. <clears throat> but the hour has come to serve our master's right. Supper in broad daylight, then to other revels, song and dancing, all the crowns of feast. He paused with a warning nod. And at that sign, Prince Telemachus, son of King Odysseus, girding his sharp sword on, clamping hand to spear, took a stand by a chair that flanked his father. His bronze spear point glinting now like fire. Now, stripping back his rags, Odysseus, master of craft and battle, vaulted onto the great threshold, gripping his bow and quiver, bristling arrows, and poured his flashing shafts before him loose at his feet, and thundered out to all the suitors, Look, your crucial test is finished, now at last. But another target's left that no one's hit before. We'll see if I can hit it. Apollo, give me glory. With that he trained a stabbing arrow on Antinous, just lifting a gorgeous golden loving cup in his hands, just tilting the two-handed goblet back to his lips, about to drain the wine, and slaughter the last thing in the suitor's mind. Who could drink in one foe in that crowd of feasters, however great his power? would bring down death on himself in black doom. But Odysseus aimed and shot Antinous square in the throat, and the point went stabbing clean through the soft neck and out, and off to the side of pitch, the cup dropped from his grasp as the shaft sank home. 
and the man's life blood came spurting out of his nostrils, thick red jets. A sudden thrust of his foot, he kicked away the table, food showered across the floor, the bread and meats soaked in a swirl of bloody filth. The suitors burst into uproar all throughout the house when they saw their leader down. They leapt from their seats, moving about desperate, scanning the stone walls like a shield in sight and a rugged spear to seize. They wheeled on Odysseus, lashing out in fury. Stranger, shooting at men will cost you your life. Your game is over. You, you shot your last. You'll never escape your own headlong death. You killed the best in Ithaca, our fine prince. Vultures will eat your corpse. And the groping dragon, each one persuading himself to guess that he killed the man by chance. Poor fools blind in the fact that all their necks were in the noose. Their doom sealed with a dark look, the wily fire of his head shot back. You dogs, you never imagined I'd return to the crawl. So cocksure that you've led my house to death, ravaged my serving women, wound my wife behind my back while I'm still alive. No fear of the gods who rule the skies up there. No fear that men's revenge might arrive someday. Now all your necks in the noose. Your doom is sealed. Here finally, after shedding the blood of his enemies, and after a good deal of testing back and forth between Odysseus and Penelope, is this handsome stranger really Odysseus? He wonders. Could Penelope really move our root pen? He asked. Here is the reunion of the famous couple. As Gary Wills described the scene, it is the greatest picture, it is the greatest picture in all literature of a mature love. Man and the on both sides equally. And so ends a marriage, not made in heaven perhaps, but the next best thing in Ithaca. The great part of Odysseus was home again at last. The major enemy bathed him, rubbed him down with oil, and drew him around in a royal cake and a choice tunic too. And Athena, crowned in that with beauty, came before him. They had taught her to all eyes, his build more massive. And down from his brows, the great goddess ran his curls like thick, hyacinth clusters full of blooms. As a master craftsman washes gold and feet and silver, a man, the god of fire, and queen Athena trained in every fine technique, and finishes off his latest effort. Handsome work. So she lavished splendor over his head and shoulders now. He stepped from his bed, listening like a god, and back to the to the seat that he had left, and facing his wife declared, Strange woman, so hard. The gods of Olympus made you harder than any other woman in the world. What other wife could have a spirit so unbending? Holding back from her husband, home at last for her, after bearing twenty years of brutal struggle. Come, nurse, think of your bed. I sleep alone. She has a heart of iron in her breast. Strange man, where he knows 
understanding. I'm not so proud, so scornful. Nor am I overwhelmed by your quick change. You look how well I know the way you looked, setting sail from Ithaca years ago, above the long, long ship. Come here to fly on room to the certain bedstead out of our bridal chamber, that room the master built with his own hands. Take it out now, sturdy bed that it is, and spread it deep with fleece, blankets, and lustrous furrows to keep warm. Put your husband to the proof. But Odysseus blazed up in fury, lashing out at his loyal wife. Woman, your words, they cut me to the core. Who could move my bed? Impossible task, even for some skilled craftsman. Unless a god came down in person, quick to lend a hand. Lifted it up with ease and moved it elsewhere. Not a man on earth, not even a peak strength, would find it easy to prize it up and shift it. No. A great sign. A hallmark lies in its construction. I know. I built it myself. No one else. There was a branching olive tree inside our court, grown to its full prime, the bowl and the column, thick set. Around it I built my bedroom, finished off the walls with good tight stone, rooted over soundly and added doors, hung well and snugly wedged. Then I locked the leafy crown of the olive, clean-cutting the stump bare from roots up. Planing it round with a sharp smoothing adds, I had the skill. I shaped it plumb to the line that hit my bedpost, bored the holes it needed with an auger. Working from there, I built my bed, start to finish. I gave it ivory inlays, gold and silver fittings, Wove the straps across an oxide, gleaming red. There's our secret sign, I tell you, our life story. Does the bed, my lady, still stand planted firm? I don't know. Or has someone chopped away that olive trunk and hauled our bedstead off? The meat group. And on the other knees goes flat, her heart surrender, recognizing the strong, clear signs of this is over. She dissolved in tears, rushed to Odysseus, flung her arms around his neck and kissed his head and cried out, Odysseus, don't flare up at me now, not you, always the most understanding man alive. The gods, it was the gods who sent us sorrow. They grudged us both a life in each other's arms, from the heady zest of youth to the stoop of old age. But don't fault me, angry with me now because I failed the first place to greet you. Hold you, so. But now, since you have revealed such overwhelming proof, the secret sign of our bed which no one's ever seen but you and I, and a single handmaid after us, the servant my father gave me when I came, who kept the doors of our room you built so well, you conquered my heart, my hard heart, at last. Yes.
Sarvadeha Pradhanikas. Also the least pastors, and such as least sort of respect. Ladies, to full compound, I feel it okay, can do well. The more she spoke, the more a deep desire for tears welled up inside his breast. He wept as he held the wife he loved, the soul of love in his arms at last. Joy. Warm is the joy that shipwreck sailors feel when they catch sight of land. The sun has struck their well-arranged ship on the open sea, with gale winds and crushing walls of waves. And only a few escape, swimming, struggling out of the frothing surf to reach the shore, their bodies crusted with salt but buoyed up with joy as they plant their feet on solid ground again, stared at every face. So joyous now to her, the sight of her husband, vivid in her gaze, that her white arms embracing his neck would never for a moment let him go. Dawn with her rose-red fingers might have shown upon their tears, if with her blinking eyes Athena had not thought of one more thing. She held back the night, and night lingered long at the western edge of the earth, while in the east she reigned in dawn of the golden throne at ocean's banks, commanding her not to yoke the winds with team that brings us light, blaze of aurora, the young colts that race the morning light. Yet now it is his season there, and said to his wife, Dear woman, you still understand the more trials, one more labor lies in store. Boundless, laden with danger, great and long. And I must see it out from start to finish. So the ghost of Teresa's prophesied to me the day that I went down to the house of death to learn her rescue home. My comrades and my own have come. Let's go to bed, dear woman. At long last, you might have seen and liked each other. Come. With his baby more reserved enough to say, his baby will have it, whenever the spirit moves you. Now it's begun to approach you home again. To native land, your grand and gracious house. So husband and wife confided in each other, while nursing your enemy under the planning crowns, or making up the bed with covers deep and soft, and working briskly. As soon as they made it snug, back to the room the old nurse went to sleep, assuring them to attend in hand, lighted the royal couple's way to bed, and leading them to their chamber, slipped away, rejoicing in each other. They returned to their bed, the old familiar place they loved so well. Thanks a lot.
so. Yeah. And I took the tapes and edited them. Like editing, I didn't change any content. I would take out the do's and ahs. When I did Jimmy Stewart, we took out the who's and ahs. What was that? But <laughs> 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 yours, there was no correction. I mean, no who, no ah, no Everything, we just ran it perfect. I'm very glad. Thank you for telling me. I mean, it's a, it's a who's and ahs. subject of the poem, 
it's what the music, the music, the poet was meant to do himself. He's meant to read on and on. And so he does. And the great paradox of that poem is that it's a poem driving toward death with a fierce exultation that is life itself. The heart stops for many of the warriors, many of the women, but the beat goes on. The wonderful paradox in women's very heartbreaking song. A poem about death and never die. But I couldn't get man in his first line, in the first position of the Odyssey. Sing to me the man who's the man of his season. So I repeated it. Tell me how it would go, help me get it in the first position. You have to start out as a man and maybe other man, just uh, that it wouldn't, it wouldn't be the same. It might be a little funny. Forgive me. <laughs> <laughs> it's what one thinks of at three o'clock in the morning. <laughs> Dr. Gerald, the old tiger, said, in the dark night of the soul, it is always three o'clock in the morning. Fun to that, but not for long as you think I'm Hungry 
But when you reach the end, if you ever reach the end, that companionship fades away, you see, and a period of mourning sets in. But he's a hell of a good companion. While he knows more stories, he can sing more songs. He can charm your ears, he can terrify you more. And then more from you. And when that recedes, you feel something. Said, 
mortal character who is Yes. And you see him as the first of your son who is right. seeing his father's honor basically being destroyed. He feels helpless. Right. But later on, you sort of see in the background other sons who are trying to reestablish their father's honor, looking at Ptolemus and Orestes, mm -hmm. and actually do. But it's really a poem about fathers and sons, no parents and children. Very strong. And it says quite a lot after the poem begins the story of Odysseus with a small story of Telemachus. As if we're to concentrate, don't start here, Mirazi, start there, in the future, in the future generations. And that means that all that happens in the poem is in process. It's all moving toward the sun, fresh energy, meaning the terrific processive sense that you get from the world. Everything's always in motion. He has a father, but he doesn't have a father. His father left him, and all of his words were <coughs> his father. Until he, Telemachus, begins to read bodies of himself. After Odysseus strings the bow, that wonderful passage, Telemachus slightly, his spirit wants limping now like fire, his mature grace ready. Like a lily in the balls of his feet, ready, righteous, ready on earth, which is his work in the Sometimes 
imitate the best that English has come up with when you, when you feel like you're near the Very often. For the old men, he got along the walls, and Herder is terrible English, but they were for her. It's terrible English. That's when they make this Easter 1960. So change, change, under the English. We just bought my, my, uh, my steel from both. Uh,